10 a.m. in London, 5 a.m. in New York, and midday in Kampala. Broadcasting from the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, your co-hosts from the United States of America, Ralph Alexander Miller II, and from the People's Republic of China, Wu Jiemeng. And now, reporting live from historic Trafalgar Square in the centre of the great city of London, you're listening to this, the ninth Wiki Game Guides Comcast. The Wiki Game Guides Comcast's coverage for the Summer Games of the 30th Olympiad in London is brought to you by Keystone Light. Smooth going down, even better on the way up. And by Taco Bell. Pseudo food so cheap, it's ridiculous. Try the new Beefy Crunch Burrito today. And by... Visa. We couldn't get Morgan Freeman to do this ad, but here goes anyway. The difference between victory and defeat is one one hundredth of a second. So don't lose. Visa. Proud sponsor of the Olympic Games for 25 years. Welcome to the 9th Wiki Game Guides Comcast, broadcasting from London as our Olympic coverage gets underway. We begin today with reactions from the opening ceremonies broadcast to over 3 billion people worldwide just two nights ago. Simon, your thoughts. Yeah, so uh, first off I've had to say that it was an excellent show, but I have to uh, temper that with the fact that my feelings about it changed quite dramatically throughout the entire uh, event as it went on. At first, uh, there was obviously excitement with that initial video that was uh, introducing London and Britain in general, but then as the kind of agrarian to industrial revolution segment went on and on, I I was sitting at home. I can only imagine what it's like in the stadium having these five uh, smokestacks come up and just start belching smoke throughout the entire stadium. Apparently, it was very true to life smoke, in fact. And yes, I want a, a whiff of that. I want to understand it. I don't want to be hit in the face with it. I'm here for pageantry, for sport, as the British call it, uh, not not to get all this smoke. And then uh, I thought it was very interesting, and again, maybe a bit uh, too long in the tooth where there was the segment um, about everyone had been hyping up this fight between Mary Poppins and Voldemort. And at first, in, in theory, it sounds like one of the greatest things ever. But then it, it, the actual implementation with these kids in these lighted beds all running around dancing and then sleeping and then in this whole nightmare phase, uh, that, and then there was actually no real fight between the two. 
Um, But then, so my feelings are kind of uh, of low at this point. I'm contemplating walking away from it. And then they pull out a string of amazing, really funny, and really awesome segments, which include uh, Rowan Atkinson, who uh, most people better know as either Johnny English or Mr. Bean, um, doing a little comedy segment with the London Symphony Orchestra. And also, more uh, awesomely, uh, Her Royal Majesty Queen Elizabeth II um, jumping out of helicopters with Daniel Craig as Agent 007. Um, but, that I mean, so at this point, my, my reaction is completely changed. But then, then... We have this long, long segment that drags on forever. This digital thing where you've got this contrived story and there's a kid playing on the, s- the steps to his house. He's playing his 3DS, which interesting uh, segue there. I liked how they worked that in. But then, like, as, as the performers are kind of texting on their cell phones and walking around, you see the bubbles of what they're saying. I, I felt like... I didn't come here to see that. I came here to see dance and everything like that. Um, and so that that was not a high for me. And um, Alex, you actually came in for what was next was the, the Parade of Nations. And so uh, the Parade of Nations, I thought, was the fastest one in recent memory. And I think there was reason for that, which... Uh, behind the scenes we'll get to later they were actually all the athletes were told to uh, put a bit of hustle into it because this is the part where uh, it can kind of get a little long and a bit dreary for a lot of people now a lot of people also then say that uh, basically this is the most dreary part of the competition I actually think it was fascinating but that's just me for um, completely unrelated reasons like politics and things like that like north and south korea they can walk in together they can walk in separate are they going to be next to each other like palestine and israel is syria going to send a team because it's kind of in civil war or like the a lot of the arab spring nations in general and like how is somali going to send athletes if they don't even have a government and the torch delivery for me was one of the best parts where uh, I guess David Beckham, he's never actually been an Olympic athlete per se, but certainly an important figure in uh, Great Britain. Well, and especially to these games, Simon, because he was one of the ambassadors who did so much to try and bring the games to London, to his hometown. Exactly. That was excellent, in my opinion, him coming down the Thames at night, and every all the sights are illuminated, passing the torch to Sir Stephen Redgrave, which probably not a whole lot of people know, but in Britain he's been multiple gold medalist for rowing, uh, running in, and especially tying it into the official motto of, uh, of the Games, which is inspire the next generation by having those young athletes uh, basically taking the torches from the previous gold medalists, passing it on to the youth, uh, who can be empowered, who can basically ha- hold the potential of the world in their hands, and them taking it around the track, lighting the leaves uh, that would eventually fold up to create the cauldron, all of the constituent nations that sent athletes, all of them combined, uh, creating basically the Olympic flame. Yeah, and Simon, I just 
A, I really liked the symbolism of the whole thing. I very much enjoyed the group of young athletes. I loved how, you know, different races, different genders from across different sports. It's just a very wide spectrum, plenty of people to draw from. But going forward into this, you know, this next generation of sport, I liked that very much. But I also liked, as you said, how all the, the pedals sort of came together to form this, this one cauldron. And it also, I mean, it works for Great Britain, the, the country itself as well, because it's made up of several constituent nations forming this one country. So I just, I liked how it worked on, you know, many levels, as well as just the purely aesthetic value. I thought that the cauldron looked pretty cool. Now, this always brings us to the question that has um, basically been presented to every single Olympics, and uh, to, to be fair, there have only been two since Beijing, about how can it match the wow factor, how can it match that basically shock and awe value that Beijing really presented um, to the world. And... I think we have to be careful and qualify this point, Simon, because just hearing lots of people discuss it and talk about it, just, you know, I've been talking friends, family, etc., and anytime anyone says, oh, you know, Beijing was so much better, they're usually talking about it in a context of just pure wow, like, how do they do that, just sort of over the top, and I think we need to be careful when judging, I don't know if you would call it the success or how good or you know whatever you want to qualify it but I think we need to be careful when saying well this was better than this because I think they're going for two very different things China was going to just try and all out impress just throw everything in the kitchen sink into it just get as many people as possible and they just they they may have done it bigger than anyone but that's because they're also the biggest country I mean they have the, the biggest population of any nation in the world whereas the UK I mean, they did say they were going for a much more intimate affair. They were going for something that was much more representative of their people, of the host city, the host nation. And in terms of their goal, I thought they hit it, you know, right on the head. So was one more successful than the other because they were going for different goals? Or what do you think? No, and I think the thing to uh, keep in mind is the fact that Great Britain is very familiar to the U.S., obviously starting from the colonies, all that you know, United States history you left behind in high school. But uh, more seriously, Great Britain and basically Europe generally as a whole is a known quantity. It's something we know. It's somewhere that most of us have traveled. It's somewhere most of us have studied been to and they speak the same language etc and so basically we're already partially familiar with their culture and what they think whereas china is something that is very excitingly foreign with martial arts a completely different way of writing their language and speaking all sorts of things and that kind of just sheer surely different culture is very conducive to basically a greater impact and making it more memorable, I think. Surely, Simon, that relies on your frame of reference because everything you just said there is relying on the assumption that you were looking through an American frame of reference, or even for that that matter, uh, a European, a sort of quote-unquote Western frame of reference. I'm wondering if someone in Asia, someone in the East, if Beijing, that may have been a much more known quantity, 
and by that reasoning, these opening ceremonies would have been a much less known quantity. Uh, that is certainly true. Um, th- however, um, we have to remember, I- I'm sorry to bring up the history textbook, but imperialism. I think that most of the world has already been educated on what happened in Britain. However, not much of the world has been educated on what happened in China, for example. We all know that the Industrial Revolution started in Britain. You know, We know that uh, Tim Berners-Lee invented the Internet, or at least some of people, probably most people who are listening to this podcast know that. Um, but who knew that China's form of painting was called a shanshui? You know, who knew that uh, basically the people that unified China first was called the Qin Dynasty? Probably not nearly as many people as could answer those first two questions. Well, I'd say it was probably around 1.3 billion at least. Okay, yes. But again, I think that... Um, Okay, for example, 1.3 billion people could know the answer to those questions. However, I think 6 billion people know the answer to the first two questions, and that's the difference. Uh, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. I mean, like I said before, all of this is very relative. It all comes down to your frame of reference and sort of where you're sitting looking out on it. So that's a very, it's a very subjective thing that I mean we're discussing here but I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how one can quantify such a subjective thing make it a, an objective this was better or this was better I don't, I don't think we can but um, this is the question that everyone has asked and obviously we're trying to look into it see whether it has any relevance or perhaps it's it is just all relative from perspective and I mean as we at least often try to do I think we've pretty much talked uh, talked off both sides of this little question, so I suppose if anyone is looking to express their particular opinion, whether you're agreeing with me or with Simon, go ahead and comment or email us at comcastwgg at gmail.com But I mean, Simon... I mean, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. I think you know we should go ahead and move on. We'll let the uh, the listeners go ahead and uh, figure out where they where they side. Sure. Now let's uh, talk a little bit about what went into the forces that went into making this opening ceremony happen. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Simon, this is something that particularly interests me, specifically because of the man behind it all, Danny Boyle. The famous director most recently known for his Oscar-winning movie Slumdog Millionaire, the Oscar-nominated 127 Hours, as well as other favorites like Train Spotting, a particular favorite of mine, as well as 28 Days Later, 28 Weeks, you know, those movies, you know, very well-known, very successful British director. And he was appointed in June of 2010, shortly before uh, 127 Hours came out in theaters, and since then, He has put, as far as I'm aware, all of his professional time and energy into making these opening ceremonies what they were. I think he spent something like 42.4 million U.S. dollars to try and stage this very, as we said before, intimate affair, very British affair. I mean, it, it took place, obviously, in the Olympic Stadium. This is actually located in 
East London in a, a district called Stratford. And it's a, you know, a massive 80,000-seat stadium. It's taken five years to complete. And by the way, Simon, I thought it was a, a very nice touch for them to bring in those, I think it was 500 builders, welders, you know, those people who put a lot of the time and energy into getting that stadium completed. I thought that was a, a very nice touch. But beyond just the stadium, the entire Olympic complex has done quite a bit to revitalize this particular section of London. This is something that's very interesting to me because obviously everyone is following the games and is just looking at the sort of face value of uh, who can throw the discus the farthest, who can swim the fastest, who can ride their horse or bike the best. But I think the more long-lasting results of these Olympics, I think those are almost just as interesting to look at because... When you consider the fact that this particular neighborhood, this particular district of London, had one of the highest unemployment rates, was uh, famous for projects like housing, but then has had, over the course of, I don't know, a number of years, had something to the tune of 15 billion U.S. dollars pumped into it to attempt to revitalize it. I think that's something that's particularly fascinating. That's something that's going to change a lot of lives. First and foremost among those is that they've actually created the the largest urban shopping center in all of Europe. And it's bringing something like 10,000 jobs to the area. I I mean, I just think these sort of stories, these almost behind-the-scene-like things, are really what have been fascinating for me. Right. So thank you for that segue. That's excellent because we're going to go behind the scenes, talk about the lead up to the games and sort of the uh, things that went into making the games happen uh, in a more technical sense. We've obviously just spent a lot of time talking about it from a creative sense, but uh, I want to lead with um, one of the things that Mitt Romney actually mentioned that got him into a bit of hot water. Now, we won't pursue that any further. We're going to let that... Um, stand where it is, but uh, he mentioned that the private security firm G4S, which uh, was a private contractor, they were contracted to provide security for the games, and they came up short, and they came up short big time, and basically the British Army, the armed forces, had to stage emergency deployments to key areas to fill the personnel gaps, and really that was a colossal embarrassment to that company and something not to be taken lightly at all um but even still even without that uh misstep this is an unprecedented mobilization of basically armed forces we've got patrol boats from the royal navy all around in the thames along the coasts got miss surface-to-air missiles being mounted on just regular apartment buildings or office complexes just ready to intercept i guess just a missile being fired from god knows where and as well as thousands of troops on the ground uh to provide response or security to an incident or just to help people uh move around and prevent kind of uh logistical nightmare from happening yeah i mean given the fact that these are rather trying times in the uh, geopolitical sector, it would appear that Great Britain is taking no chances when it comes to any sort of incident, whether that be external or internal terrorists or protesters. 
Yeah, and let's not forget the London bombings uh, of the subways, the tube, as it were, which um, really shook up the nation for quite some time, caused them to really go into this defensive mode, uh, couple that with um, basically increased violence from football hooligans like the people in the British Nationalist Party or the English Defense League. And, Simon, we can't remember, I think it was just under a year ago the riots in London just I'm, I can't recall it's either just north or northwest of the site of the actual Olympics that are taking place right now there were massive riots Simon something unprecedented for a number of years previous exactly so I can definitely understand the rationale and mentality probably going on in the security apparatus there um, and the fact that G4S failed was basically a significant cost to taxpayers. Yeah, and even though they did fail, I think it is something to be commended that the British government was able to respond in the way that it did. Obviously, it took money, and so some people will be unhappy with that. But just the fact that they were able to mobilize and redeploy specific forces to accomplish the job, I think, hey, you know, that's something that... They need to be commended. But, as you said, Simon, it, it did come at a cost. I think the final tally, as I said before, is around, around the mark of $15 billion U.S. dollars, which overran their original budget by, I, th- I think, a factor of four. Yeah, almost four times their original projected budget. And that was before this entire global recession collapsed. So that was an estimate made during the good times. So that really is hitting the budget hard and that almost reminds me of really they should have taken it in the spirit of what they did in the previous olympics and everyone's making a big deal that london is the first city to host the games three times uh first in 1908 and then secondly in 1948 the first one since the end of world war ii now britain was absolutely devastated london was bombed to basically a husk and there was rationing in place people were miserable and uh, they were known as the austerity games because the 1948 london olympics did not cost a single cent of taxpayer money though that being said simon those games were a little bit last minute when you consider the fact that the previous two renditions of the games had actually been canceled due to conflict and in a way it was just sort of hey athletes let's come together let's get this back back on the back on the road let's get this show going yeah and so uh about getting that uh the show going again um we're going to try and talk about one of the biggest questions that follows any olympic games after everything's said and done, after the excitement, after the gold medals are all done, after the flag has been lowered, the cauldron is, um, uh, what is it, snuffed out, I guess? Um, what, what becomes of the venues? London happens to be lucky because it already is utilizing existing stadiums that are used for other purposes, most notably things like uh, Wembley and Wimbledon that are used frequently for other purposes. However, the problem that has plagued past Olympics and could threaten London 
is the uselessness of very expensive venues after the game. And we, we see this nowhere better than with 2008, Beijing, right? The bird's nest sits empty. It costs a tremendous amount of money to make, and there's no use for it. The water cube, that giant blue cube next to it, has been turned into a water park, and it's barely breaking even with substantial government subsidies. And we see this even before that in what's probably the worst investment of all time, considering what we know now, in Greece, in Athens. Many of the fields and stadiums that were made have now been basically vandalized, firebombed, abandoned, just in general ransacked and kind of demolished. However, Simon, London does have an advantage over the previous two host cities, more so over Athens than Beijing, but it's still an advantage, is that real estate in London is at a premium, more so now than really ever, just because of the fact that while the rest of Europe, the rest of the UK has really started to drop into the global recession, you know, as everyone else has, London has lagged behind in that a little bit. They've actually still done decently well for themselves. It's still a center of economic trade for the entire world. And so people are obviously going to still want to come there, still live there. So there will still be uses for it. As far as the actual Olympic Stadium goes, even before the games had begun, they opened a bidding process where there are two of London's football clubs, uh, West Ham United and Tottenham Hotspur FC have both placed bids to take over the rights to the Olympic Stadium. As I said before, uh, a large outdoor, actually I'm not sure if it's outdoor, but a large urban shopping center has been created that will obviously continue to be used after the Olympics going forward, seeing as it's drawn such big names as Hugo Boss, Prado, etc., it's just it's things like this that I believe will allow London to, in the long term, benefit from these games in a way that, unfortunately, previous hosts have been unable to do. Um, so, with that having been said, there are a couple of uh, miscellaneous thoughts I'd like to put in. First of all, the mascots look absolutely atrocious, and I'll put pictures of them in the link dump for everyone to see. I mean, Simon, that's kind of par for the course when it comes to mascots. I mean, we both are from Atlanta, host of the, the 96 games, and we had, was it Iggy, our little mascot, and he was a blue dude with weird thing. I, It's just bizarre, and it's just, that's how Olympic mascots go, because nobody likes them but the little kids anyways, so, eh. I, I mean, I was a little kid then, and I don't think I even liked it then. Can someone get it right, please? I, it's going to take a while for that to ha- happen, if ever. Also, I've noticed this since basically the first Olympics that I could actually care about, which were probably either 2000, 2002, Sydney, or Salt Lake City, um, that the problem with the Olympics is that they're the premier sporting event for the world for like every sport yet they're sponsored by such glorious proponents of healthy eating healthy living and active exercise like mcdonald's coca-cola cadbury and heineken 
that's irony for you. I have no idea like, how they get away with that or just anything in general. It's called money, Simon. It can do a lot of things. Of course, this is me being naive and imagining the world should be working exactly, you know, as it should, pretty, and not uh, in the, basically, capitalism. Yeah, well, speaking of capitalism, with that out of the way, we're going to move into uh, an in-depth look at several countries. And, like I said, with capitalism, we're going to go ahead and start it off with the U.S. of A. Yes, America. America. They're looking again to try and take the top medal count overall, but they're going to be in a tough contest with China for the most golds because China actually had the most golds in Beijing. Whether that's home field advantage or not is yet to be seen, and they only won the overall medal count by, I believe, about maybe a dozen or so. Uh, so let's look at three areas where they have traditionally excelled. Yeah, well, starting off... One of the teams with, I think, probably the most hope and definitely the most hype is the U.S. men's basketball team. Now, comparisons have been made for quite a while between this team and 20 years ago, the 92 Dream Team. And I'm not going to identify which side of that divide I line up with uh, there's plenty of people who make the argument both ways, especially members of both teams. But I think it can be said that the U.S. men's team is a good bit better than the other teams competing. However, that being said, there are other teams that will put them to the test. I was, as was seen in the last, I don't know, I'm going to use a soccer term here. I'm not sure if that necessarily applies for basketball, but the last friendly before the competition begun was against Spain, and Spain definitely gave them a run, for, a run for their money. In fact, it was four years ago in Beijing that the U.S. men's team had a very, very close final with Spain, and then basically the Spanish players are on record saying that they're not going to go quietly into the night. They're going to hold America's feet to the fire. Yeah, and I mean, I thought it was interesting, Simon, that given Spain's traditional strength in such sports as soccer, tennis with people like Rafael Nadal. It was actually a basketball player who was carrying the flag for Spain during the Parade of Nations. It was Paul Gasol. Exactly. So the next area is swimming. Firstly, everyone thought coming off of all that we knew from 2008, it was going to be Michael Phelps, Michael Phelps all the way. Uh, people said that uh, U.S. men's swimming, or, or just U.S. swimming in general, was not going to be an external contest. It was going to be this hyped-up showdown between Ryan Lochte, who is kind of the upstart challenger to Michael Phelps, and uh, Phelps himself with those eight gold medals sitting pretty. And we've actually already seen everything just go topsy-turvy from the first few results that we've been able to collect, which was that uh, Lochte was able to um, basically beat everyone handily in the first prelims and Phelps qualified by the skin of his teeth. Simon, it has to be said, though, it is a little bit harder to compete when you're wearing eight gold medals. <laughs> exactly. The aerodynamics just doesn't work. It just slows you down. But um, 
Another thing that everyone's making a huge deal about, which I immediately had raised eyebrow and significant skepticism toward, was he's 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 taking it down a notch. Really, he's slowing down the pace of his work. I mean, and neglecting to say he entered seven events. Okay, as opposed to the eight that he was in last time. Yep, that's yeah, taking it down a notch, a notch. He's just putting his feet up, man. I mean. He's not competing in eight events. Exactly. Well, to truth be told, he only has to get three more golds before he becomes the most decorated Olympian of all time. So, of course, I guess he can afford to triage some events. All right, maybe I'll settle for a silver here. I'll go for a gold there. Maybe bronze there. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, hey, Sam, it's all about giving yourself options. Exactly. Uh, the third pillar of the U.S. is women's soccer, or football, as it is across the pond. Yeah, and I think that this is going to get a, a lot larger following this go-round when you compare it with Beijing four years ago, specifically because of the wide broadcast success of the 2011 uh, Women's World Cup and the raging success that was the women's team at that competition. Exactly. They, the men uh, fail, failed to qualify in the final game that would allow them to enter the Olympics, but the women beat Japan in a recent friendly, which, if you remember, was the team that they lost the heartbreaking penalty shootout of the finals in the World Cup to. And so with that, I feel like that was a major uh, stumbling block uh, in terms of morale or psych, you know, psyche that they've overcome. Yeah, it was nice for those girls to be able to really clean out the closet, move all that baggage out of the way, and just really go forward fresh into this competition, feeling, as you said, confident, and honestly, I think, much more experienced and a much better unit as a team. I mean, we saw in that competition young talent like Alex Morgan burst onto the scene. I mean, a year on, a year later... She's definitely established herself as a regular in this team and quite a talented forward for the USA. Uh, And so Alex Morgan's only one of them. There's a couple of others like Megan Rapinoe and goalie Hope Solo, which I would now like to say are all players on the Seattle Sounders women's team. Yeah, Simon, we all know you're a big Seattle Sounders fan. But I have to add on to that, Abby Wambach. Abby Wambach is going to be crucial for the U.S. women's team to do well because she is really that heart and soul, that driving force of the team. Yeah, so we already saw them uh, face adversity pretty early on. Again, prelim results because the soccer qualifying takes a long time. They're actually take place before the Olympics technically even start with the opening ceremonies. Um, They managed a really tough comeback against France. They were down 2-0 and then came back to win it 4-2. And so they were able uh, to sweep sweep aside a more lackluster Colombian side with much more ease. Yeah, that that first game against France was a bit tough. They conceded two two goals very early on and they were I wouldn't say lucky but 
I think it was it, it was definitely a lot of skill and uh, a certain mental fortitude that they were able to draw upon and bring themselves together as a unit, come back, and I think that momentum did carry over into the next game with Columbia because, Simon, as you said, they were able to pretty handily sweep aside a Colombian team that didn't really challenge much at all. I mean, the U.S. controlled the game. They really held the ball in the Columbia's half, and especially in the second half, they began to run all over Columbia. I think it was two goals in a span of 10 minutes where they just enjoyed the lion's share of possession. And we'll move on now from the U.S. to um, the special relationship partner and the host nation themselves, the United Kingdom. The host nation was a distant fourth in terms of medals overall and in gold in Beijing. And UK Sport, which is basically their governing body, is aiming for a fourth place finish overall given basically the size of the country relative to how much it can produce. It's also the only nation to be competing in all 26 sports that are offered in the Olympics, and I feel like this is more to do with them being the host nation than it is feeling that they're competitive in all 26 of those areas. And so with that said, let's look at three areas uh, to watch. The first of those being sailing. Obviously, Britain has a long and storied history as a maritime nation, and so it makes sense that they have a certain history and a certain prestige for the naval events. Uh, They have a total of six medals in sailing, four of those being gold, uh, across all kinds of watercraft, those medals being from Beijing. Right. And the next one is cycling, although this, um, basically, this avenue of attack has already seen a stumbling block again in early results. We saw Mark Cavendish unable to take the gold early on in the men's um, distance cycling, where they had 14 medals and 8 gold across pretty much every cycling discipline, whether interior or exterior cycling, you know, whether you're cycling in team formations in a velodrome or going in your more traditional, um, basically, cycling road road race. And the final area of strength is a rather interesting one for this competition. Uh, to Americans, it will be known as soccer, but to Brits, it will always be known as football. I mean, come on, it makes sense. You're playing it with your feet. But for the first time since 1960, Great Britain will actually field a united team. Before this, they had competed as separate nations, as Scotland, as England, or not at all. However, for this event, they have decided to come together and really put up a united front for these games. Now, I have to say that even, you you say that as some kind of bold talk, but in in real terms, it was not even that much. It was basically, we're the host nations, we have to field a team in this area, but how can we do it if we've got a Scottish Football Association, if we've got a Northern Irish Football Association, Welsh, English, FAs? It it just doesn't work. Yeah, it was kind of the English sort of, 
taking control as history has shown they have done and sort of cobbling together this team from the several member nations of the United Kingdom. And despite the fact that, quote-unquote, it is a great, Britain, great British team, it is actually only made up of members from England and Wales. And there are really only a handful of Welsh players. I think maybe five in all. The rest are all English. And really, this was mostly due to the fact that the individual constituent football associations in Scotland, in Wales, in Northern Ireland, all believed that they would lose their hard-earned autonomy in the eyes of FIFA, which is soccer's governing body, uh, and that in the future, if they set this precedent by going along with Team Great Britain, that they will lose their right to play as an independent entity. And as such, these action, these FAs actually requested that their players turn down the selections for Team Great Britain. That's why there are no members from Scotland or North Ireland actually present on, in the team. Exactly. And we should actually mention that um, it's important to note that men's soccer, the men's soccer tournament, is U23, so players have to be 23 and under. You're allowed three exceptions over the age. While women's is not age-restricted, probably because if you restricted it such, you would lose a lot of talent and a lot of interest. Yeah, and Simon, this is actually particularly important for the U.S., going quickly back to the U.S., for the reason that the U.S. men were unable to qualify whereas they've done well in Beijing I believe if memory serves a lot of the young players such as Stuart Holden Michael Bradley who were present at those games have unfortunately gone over the age cap I think they're both 25 and they're if I don't know if many of the listeners to this podcast are avid fans or followers of the USA national team but uh, I would have to count myself uh, amongst those numbers. And for anyone who's been really following the development of U.S. soccer, they know that there's a bit of a lag between the quote-unquote current generation and the, I guess you could say, next generation of U.S. soccer stars. Now, this is something that USA team coach uh, Jurgen Klinsmann has been working on and trying to develop, but it has been rather apparent that those are... Uh, still ongoing. Yeah, and the rule that it has to be U23 makes for some interesting results. For example, the one where everyone was surprised to hear that Japan upset Spain, which on the, basically, if we were playing unrestricted, would be a huge story, right? Spain, fresh from a World Cup victory, fresh from consecutive UEFA Euro tournament victories, and yet suddenly, here they are losing to uh, a round of 16 World Cup power. And Simon, I think, we, I think we're a little quick to uh, discredit Japan. We should not throw this out at all, because even though Spain is missing some of their top performers, such as you know, goalkeeper Iker Casillas, Gerard Piquet, and Puyol in the back, Xavi, Iniesta, you know, these huge, huge stars of world football... Their U23 team is still nothing to shake a stick at. They're still made up of some pretty impressive players. 
Yeah, but that rule, again, makes for some interesting results, like the fact that Hungary, of all countries, has the most gold medals in men's soccer. And that's, if you're to the untrained eye, that's a very odd result, right? You'd, be, you'd imagine that it's one of these powerhouses that you hear from the World Cup, like Germany, like Brazil, or like Spain. But to the more discerning eye, you would find that this actually makes some good sense because to the avid soccer historian, football historian, you would know that Hungary during the 50s and 60s was actually one of the most successful and innovative sides in world football. They're actually ranked number one, I believe, in terms of... There's sort of like a... uh, soccer power ranking that ranks teams and that's how you compare teams for different generations and they're actually ranked as the top team of the 20th century they had the top score of the 20th century in their side and they actually laid the groundworks for the total football that came into fashion in the 70s and 80s uh, used most successfully by the Netherlands but it's these little tidbits and facts that I think are the most interesting thing about the Olympics, Simon, is where you're bringing up this history, and it's things you don't necessarily know, but that just add an extra depth, an extra bit of flavor to the games. Yeah, and so with that, we're going to move on to the our final country that we're going to take a case study at today, which is the previous host nation and contender for the most medals overall which is China. Now, they're trying to fight, as we said before, for the overall medal count champion and gold champion. They basically, again, as I said, narrowly lost by 10 in the overall count to the U.S. in 2008. So let's take a look at a couple areas of strength that they're going to look at in order to reach that magic number. The first one is gymnastics. Now, hopefully, they're... um, female team has gotten a little bit older, maybe legal this time. Yes, I'm going to borrow a line from the birther movement and ask, I would like to see the birth certificates. Yeah, exactly. But um, even as much as, as controversy as they caused there, they're actually struggling in the prelims. I believe that as of right now, they are roughly third and several points behind the U.S., Now, the second area of strength that they're looking for, literally strength, is women's weightlifting, right? Now, the first person might hear that and go, what? Yeah, I was uh, kind of scratching my head when Simon told me this, but I guess when when you look at it strategically, it kind of makes sense because now the, where we are in the Olympics, we sort of have the U.S. and China lining up in the same way that during the 70s and particularly the 80s, the USA and Russia lined up against each other. However, the difference being there is there's less head-to-head competition and more reliance on overall medals. So in a bid to try and jump past the U.S. and take dominance in this new competition of overall medal count. China has started to put a lot of funding, a lot of development into these more obscure sports, uh, more obscure competitions, such as women's weightlifting. Exactly. They're trying to strategically target places that are 
often underfunded and obscure categories, usually um, areas that are in women's, so that they can basically get, without terribly much effort, some easy golds. Um, the next one is ping pong. Literally, I think that's enough to be said, right? I looked at the power rankings on the ITTF, which is the governing body of ping pong, table tennis, and I think 9 out of 10 of them, top 8, were all Chinese. So, and also, I think it should be known that any other nation that is fielding a ping pong player has a Chinese expat playing for them. Yeah, I believe the U.S. player's name is Timothy Wong. My, to my point, exactly. I think I saw people from Austria, from Singapore, from Germany, all with Chinese names. So it's literally going to be a battle uh, internally, just maybe in different colors. Now, here's one that was very uh, proud and powerful in Beijing, which was diving. Now, there's been a slight rivalry between a uh, hometown hero, uh, Tom Daly, who's 18, and 19-year-old phenom from China, Qiu Bo. So, Tom Daly, basically, if you've missed out, he recently somehow managed to send a tweet to uh, Qiu Bo. I don't know how he got past the Great Firewall. Um, basically, shit-talking. Getting ready to take him on. And so, even despite that, China still looks ready to take most of the single and synchro diving um, golds and medals in general because they'd put in very strong performances in all diving competitions up to this point. Yeah, and finally, another one of the more obscure sports that China is putting a, a lot of its concentration into is women's shooting. So, I mean, I think the same thing that we said about weightlifting applies here. It's China just basically trying to inflate their metal count in the same way they inflate their currency. By the way, I can tell you that this strategy is already succeeding. I believe that in the latest news, uh, China has already won the gold medal in women's shooting. So the strategy is proven to work. And that basically concludes it for today, our coverage from London. Now, there's one more thing that I'd like to, um, for all our listeners to keep in mind. It's um, the 2012 Summer Olympics drinking game. I actually ran across this on Meme Base. It was really funny. And Alex, you recent or you just said something that reminded me entirely of this uh, little chart here. One of them is take a drink or chug every time the USSR is mentioned in context of the Olympics. And so I'll put this picture in the link dump as well. And so with that, we are going to sign off from London tonight. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Alex Miller. And I'm Simon Wu. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the Olympics.